This week on Pop Culture Confidential, Luke Jennings is the author of the novel Codename Villanelle, the basis for the great new series Killing Eve. Plus, reporter Annette John Hall has covered the Bill Cosby case and trials. She joins us to give some perspective. Hello everyone, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. So glad to have you with us again this week. So beloved comedian Bill Cosby's conviction on sexual assault charges a few weeks ago was hailed as a victory for the victims. It's the first high-profile conviction in the Me Too era. Later on the show, I talk to reporter Annette John Hall, the host of Cosby Unraveled. We talk about the case, the verdict, and what it means going forward. But first, it's my favorite new show, Killing Eve. It's an addictive spy thriller, a cat and mouse story like nothing else out there. It has two intense and interesting female characters at its center. Eve Pilastri is a desk-bound MI5 officer who begins to track an assassin, Villanelle. Both women become obsessed with each other. Sandra Oh plays Eve, and Jodie Comer is the sociopathic assassin Villanelle, and they're both stellar. I know you are an extraordinary person, exceptionally bright, determined. I know something happened to you. I know you're a psychopath. never tell a psychopath they are a psychopath. It upsets them. Are you upset? Luke Jennings is the author of the novel Codename Villanelle, which is the basis for the series. He says that the talented Fleabag creator Phoebe Waller-Bridge was his first choice to write and helm Killing Eve. Now, Luke Jennings is an author, but also a journalist. He's written for Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and Time. And he's the dance critic at The Observer. And I'm thrilled to have him with me today. I started by asking Mr. Jennings about his inspirations and the idea behind the two women at the center of his story. The idea of Villanelle is partly there's this kind of, there's this Faustian bargain where you can have everything you want and you can live your absolutely best and most fabulous life, but you have to kill people every so often. Um, and most of us would say no to that. Most of us are like Eve who struggles to do the right thing and moves forward messily and, um, and chaotically and, and has a marriage that is, it's, it's not shaky, but it's uncertain and it, it doesn't give her everything that she wants. So, Eve is us, and Villanelle is what we would be if we had no conscience whatsoever, and we could have everything we wanted. And she does have everything she wants, but she kind of squares the circle because her psychopathic makeup means that she actually, the killing is fine. It's, it's She's willing to do this, yeah. It's a perfectly reasonable price to pay to have the life that she wants. And she's come from a horrible life. She's come from an unbelievably horrendous life. And she's she's brutalized. And, you know, her mother died when she was very young and et cetera. You know, she is um, she is a very, very damaged person. But she makes up for this with fabulous stuff. 
And did you do any research in terms of MI5, spy organizations and things like that before you started? Yeah, I did quite a lot of research of that. I did I did research on um, on psychopathy and also on intelligence work worldwide. So, you know, these characters are grounded in in fact and, and some kind of reality. I mean, obviously, they're completely fictional characters, but they do stand up in their own worlds. Tell me a little bit about that psychopathy research. That sounds interesting. There is something called the psychopathy checklist, which is, I think, is 23 different characteristics that you find in a in a full-blown psychopath. Which John Ronson uses in his... John Ronson uses it, yes. They were originally defined by a man called Hare in the United States, and that's served as the kind of um, principal reference ever since. But I didn't want to have a, to have Villanelle have all of these. I, I wanted her to be sort of on the scale, but redeemable, just in part, just this, just this little window of possibility of redemption and humanity. Which ones of them does she have? She's grandiose. She is a fantasist. She lives completely in a, in a world dominated by herself and her preoccupations. But she, she is not completely untouchable emotionally. Uh, she has walled herself off. She's had this very brutal childhood but um there is just this this little little chink in her armor that's what eve accesses what about your research into mi5 and spy organizations you see a lot of intelligence thrillers on television where the whole thing looks slick like an advertising agency mm-hmm. and, all, and all that. But I very quickly learned that it was it was not like that at all, that it's as chaotic as anywhere else and kind of boring offices and a lot of office intrigue and all of that kind of thing. Which is so the wonderful part of your story, the sort of normalcy in, in, in the chaos. <laughs> I, well, I think it's more than normal. I mean, these, pe- these people are not well paid. They struggle with all the things that lower paid people struggle with, with, you know, not having a big enough place and getting to work on time. And, you know, they would like nicer clothes, but they can't have them. And anyway, their, their work requires them to look sort of very drab. I mean, that's Eve's situation. Mm-hmm. She has this kind of horrible wardrobe, partly because that's expected of her professionally, but also partly because she's she's got no eye for it. It's She's no good at that. It's part of her chaos. What kind of um, these uh, sort of spy thrillers and literature and film have influenced you? Spy stories, detective stories. I mean, I just devour them, actually. But I have been disappointed in recent years because... They get so techy, mm-hmm. so tiresomely macho, the, the sort of loner guy with his love of jazz and his alcohol habit and his broken marriage. I mean, give us a break, you know. Which I'm sorry to say is a lot of the Scandinavian noir. <laughs> it's always the lone, depressed policeman. <laughs> well, I like the things that show teamwork because actually that's much more interesting than the kind of lone, inspired, tortured guy. 
I mean, life isn't like that. Like it's a teamwork is much more interesting, especially the kind of antipathy and the jealousies and the anger and people struggling towards a conclusion. I just get very bored of these lonely guys with their weapons and their, you know, I mean, enough. Right, right. The female sort of kick-ass spy can be so stereotypical. I mean, she's always chasing a guy and there's always a reason. What was your sort of intention with these two women and their relationship? Well, I think that they each fulfill something that's missing in the other's life. And they develop this kind of fascination for each other, which is it's more of a of a tension that even when they're not in the same place, there is that tension between them. They feel the other's presence and and the consequence of the other's actions. It's that kind of slightly confused relationship that you might have with someone where you're not quite sure if you're very attracted to them or if you actually want to be them. It's a fascination of opposites. And it's also a fascination of somebody who seems to have something that you can't hold and grasp in your own life. So they're complementary characters. And also, without wanting to put in a spoiler, Eve answers something in Villanelle's personal history that Villanelle responds to. So it's just a tension between them that they can't get each other out of each other's heads. They can, Well, they can't get each other out of their own heads. Now, when it became clear that Codename Villanelle was going to be adapted into a TV series, what and who were you looking for um, to do this? One of the things that we had to decide was who was going to write the scripts. I mean, if I was continuing to write the stories, obviously, they wanted somebody to write the scripts. And... I felt very strongly that it should be a woman writing the scripts that that she'd get the best out of the characters. And basically, we so we settled on Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who was the person that 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 I definitely wanted. She's one of the most incredible storytellers on TV right now, and in my opinion, what aspects did she bring to your original story that were sort of new to you? Well, she brought in the kind of the detail and to change some of the characters, but Eve and Villanelle are completely true to how they were, how I conceived them on that first day and how I wrote them. Um, And she put in lots of sort of funny situations and TV is minute by minute. There has to be something being said or happening all the time. And that's a very different rhythm from, you know, from fiction where you can dip in, you dip out and she's she's brilliant at that. I mean, she hadn't done any TV, I don't think, when... Um, this was before Fleabag. Well, Fleabag, Fleabag was a play then, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, it had been at the Edinburgh Festival and had done well, and I went to see it in London. It was it was a one-woman show, and I, I basically grabbed her as she was coming out and said, look, you just have to, you just have to write this TV series. And she was kind of bemused and, um, uh, but she read it and she loved the characters and she totally got them. I was so fascinated in your background, if you don't mind. You're an author and, and a very prolific journalist and a reviewer of ballet and such, but you were a dancer. Why did your dancing career end? Well, I, I danced for professionally for 10 years and then I, I had an injury. I got an injury on stage 
And that was it, basically. I had to think fast what else I could do. Mm-hmm. And I was 30, and um, I'd always written little bits and pieces, and I liked writing, and um, I always read a lot. But that must have been a tremendous blow after 10 years of doing dedicating your life to something so immersive as a dancing career. Yeah, it is, it is a blow. It's, it's like a death. You know, you mourn your your career as a dancer, and I loved it. And um, they were the people I knew, and that was the world I knew, and, and I couldn't do it anymore. But I did what a lot of people with absolutely no qualifications to do anything do, is hope that they can write. <laughs> but I was, just, I was thinking that there was something, there's some kind of dance in how you write this. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I do try and write with a sense of movement. And I mean, I think that the whole relationship between Eve and Villanelle is a dance with moves and counter moves and who's leading who and advances and retreats. And I've choreographed dancers. So so this is a bit like choreographing your characters. You, I, I do want people to know to see these scenes like you know cinematically to see to see the characters moving and knowing what they're seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting that's bringing it alive and if you and, and there is no more intense moment when people's lives are at stake what about the coming season how far have you all come in in the television adaptation yeah the coming season is is already underway i mean i've been tied up for the last few months very much with with writing the second novel because the the first four stories were collected into a novel which is which is now out called Codename Villanelle and that's um, I'm now writing a follow up to that which is another full length novel which I'm I'm just finishing this week oh, wow. and, and that'll be coming out and um, but as for the second series well I, I really can't. I can't say anything about it. Ah, okay. Well, Mr. Jennings, thank you so much for your time and looking forward to this coming book and as well as the rest of the episodes now. Well, thank you, Christina. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Luke Jennings. Jennings is the author of the novel Codename Villanelle. Killing Eve is out on HBO and BBC America now. And now, a few weeks ago, the second trial against beloved comedian Bill Cosby ended in a guilty verdict on three counts. Joining me to give some perspective on this case is Annette John Hall. She's a reporter at WHYY in Philadelphia and the host of the podcast Cosby Unraveled. She's followed and reported on the events closely. Ms. John Hall, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be here, Christina. Please call me Annette. Okay, thank you. Um, So I want to hear your analysis on this latest trial, the guilty verdict and what it means. But but first, a little bit of background. Nearly 60 women have come forward with allegations against Mr. Cosby over many, many decades. Um, Would you mind telling us a little bit about some of the victims that have um, you've particularly followed and what the allegations have been? All of the women were pretty different. I mean, some were trying to break into modeling um, and acting and went to Bill Cosby for career advice. Others were waitresses wherever the hotels he was performing at. And they all had very similar stories that um, they came to see him for career advice and he offered them 
pills, which they were reluctant to take, or a drink um, that was spiked with something. And then uh, they were basically rendered, uh, you know, not unconscious, but semi-unconscious. Paralyzed. Yeah. And when they, when they awoke, there was evidence that they had been assaulted. And so all of them shared similar stories. The witnesses who testified in the case, their stories were happened in the late 80s and early 90s. The judge wouldn't allow any witnesses to testify who had stories earlier than that. But certainly, I mean, this kind of behavior exhibited by Cosby happened as early as 1969. I remember at one point um, reading or or hearing in in your podcast that uh, Bill Cosby has said himself in a deposition that he did use quaaludes to drug women, which seems like such an admission. Why was this never taken seriously? Well, the the, the deposition was sealed for one thing. Mm. That was part of the deposition that he gave um, when Andrea Constant filed a civil suit against him. And um, he expected it to be sealed. Um, it was only when an Associated Press reporter filed a Freedom of Information request to get it unsealed that then a judge saw it, looked at it, and said, well, there's enough evidence here to try him criminally. Because Cosby had made a deal, a verbal deal, with the district attorney at the time, Bruce Castor, that charges would not be brought against him. Mm. After Andrea Constant first tried to file suit against him criminally. And so... When that route was close to her, she then filed the civil case against him. And that's when he was deposed. And that's when that information came out. He expected it to be sealed. He expected no one to see it. But thanks again to the AP, those documents were open. And that's what set the stage for another criminal trial to be opened with a new district attorney. And that's the first trial, which... I think people uh, may not understand why only one victim, Andrea Constant, was able to actually bring this to trial. What's the reason for that? Because her accusations fell right under the statute of limitations. All the other victims, the statute of limitations on their accusations had run out. That's incredible. Just under the wire then, right? Just under the 10-year wire, yes. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was the only reason why she was able to bring charges against him. And I think that is something that needs to be pointed out because I hear a lot of people talking about, well, why did all those women, why, why didn't they file criminal charges against him? Well, because they couldn't. And that's uh, one thing that women, his victims are trying to change in various states, that um, a statute of limitations um, for sexual assault to eliminate the statute of limitations. Now, this first trial um, led to a mistrial. Yes, it was a hung jury. I think that, you know, a couple of people voted against not to find him guilty. I understand that it was um, only two people who 
who could not find him guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And that probably was because, you know, Andrea Constant continued to have contact with Cosby. Well, two things. Number one, Andrea Constant still had contact with Cosby. After she alleges that this, uh, the rape happened. Yeah, after the alleged assault occurred. And also, there was, I really do think the addition of the extra witnesses really bolstered her case. That's what happened in the next trial, that five witnesses were allowed to speak. That's correct. And they weren't allowed to speak during the first trial. So it was basically just her word against his. And the fact that there were some timetable elements that were off for her, that she couldn't recall certain things, and that there were 50, more than 50 phone calls made between her and Cosby after the assault occurred. I just think that there were some members of the jury who could not wrap their heads around that whole thing. So who... Are some of the people around Cosby? What's his you know his defense like? Tom Mesero was his lead attorney, the same attorney who successfully defended Michael Jackson against his child assault case right. um, many years ago, and helped Michael Jackson get acquitted from those charges. He had Christina a whole team. I mean, there were so many of them; they were spilling out of the off of the defense table and into the visitors <laughs> the visitors seats. I mean he had a whole team of witnesses and Kathleen Bliss, who was one of his lead attorneys, she was really a bulldog and I think now looking back at it, um her tactic of really painting the victims as these money grubbing gold diggers who were just party girls and wanted a piece of Cosby for his money kind of backfired. Um, in this era that we're in of Me Too, people just found those descriptions of women very distasteful, I think. How would you describe Andrea Constant in the second trial? I mean, she was really, she had been through a lot um, in these two trials. Yeah, she, she, she had... I wasn't in the courtroom for her testimony, but my understanding is that she was very poised and determined and focused and did not let um, the defense's badgering affect her. Her mother, um, Gianna Constant, uh, was a real pistol, mm -hmm. um, according to the reporters who covered the trial on a daily basis. Um, that she was very um, passionate, that um, her, this had happened to her daughter, um, very defensive of her, and, and, and condemned Bill Cosby. And I think her testimony really helped. Um, she had had several conversations with Cosby in which he told her, I'm sorry for what I did to Andrea. I'm a sick old man. Oh, wow. So, you know, the jury was privy to all of that testimony as well. So as you mentioned in this new trial, there was some different things. For example, five witnesses were allowed to speak and such. And this led to a guilty verdict on three counts. What were the reactions from the victims and other people and reporters around you of, of this verdict? The victims in the, who were in the courtroom let out audible gasps 
and sobs. Andrea Constant showed no emotion. Um, afterwards, she was embraced um, by her friends and family. On the courthouse steps, Gloria Allred, who was, you know, the well-known women's civil rights attorney who had represented many of the victims, said that it was a great day. She thanked the jury um, and, and said that it looks like we as a society have turned a corner in women being believed in these kind of sexual assault cases. When and what do you expect in terms of sentencing for Mr. Cosby? Well, he's supposed to be sentenced this summer, and his team can only file an appeal after sentencing. He is now wearing an ankle bracelet, and he cannot leave his home outside of Philadelphia. He cannot go anywhere else. And so sentencing can go anywhere from 30 years because each count carries a maximum of of 10 years um, to 22 months. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are thinking that, you know, he will get the minimum, if anything at all, because he's old and he, he has sight issues and he has health issues. I mean, you know, Christina, you can't separate. I mean, you can, but it's difficult to separate the sexual predator from the beloved entertainer here. And I think that's global, really, who has given so much to people through his art, through the Cosby show, through, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember him. I was a kid, but I'm old enough to remember him being on I Spy as the first African-American really to star in a major episodic television show. He's given all kinds of money to all kinds of educational institutions. He's given artwork, he and his wife, to the Smithsonian. He's helped countless students through college. So this is a man who's done a lot. I believe that the judge will take all of that into consideration um, when imposing a sentence, his age, and just what he means to the culture at large. Um, Especially for African Americans, because I'm I'm African American and I have a hard time wrestling with that because I understand, um, you know, the unfairness of the criminal justice system in this country against African American males. And a lot of friends that I've spoken to have questioned that, have questioned why Bill Cosby and not Woody Allen or Harvey Weinstein, or even the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And speaking of that, this is sort of the first high-profile guilty verdict in a Me Too era um, for all these people you mentioned. Do you think that we'll see anything come of this for others? Well, I would think so. From my understanding is that victims are preparing cases against Harvey Weinstein as we speak. You know, if anything, I think that this emboldens women to really hold these powerful men accountable for their actions. Now that they see that they can win a case, they can actually be believed and win a case. Right. A global conversation about why women's stories aren't believed over with all these men you mentioned over decades. That's correct. 
Annette, thank you so much for joining me and for giving your perspective on this and, and here and also on your podcast and in your writing. Thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure, Christina. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Annette John-Hall. Her podcast is called Cosby Unraveled. And thank you so much for joining us this week on Pop Culture Confidential. Please follow us on Instagram, Pop Culture Confidential, and Twitter, at Pod Pop Culture. And make sure to listen next week, only on Spotify. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.